Well, please turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 557, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We will be looking at the entire chapter this morning, but let us just start by reading the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7. Who is like the wise and knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Pause reading God's word at this time. Let us pray that he would open it to us and speak to us through his scriptures. The heavens, O Lord, declare your glory, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night they reveal your knowledge. But your word is perfect. Your word revives the soul. Your word makes wise the simple. Your precepts are perfect, and they bring joy to our hearts. Your commands are pure, enlightening our eyes. Your word is more to be desired than much fine gold. And so may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, we pray. Our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, each week, part of our prayer of the church is praying for persecuted Christians around the world. I've heard the statistic, I'm sure you have as well, that more people have died for their, more Christians have died for their faith in the last hundred years than the previous 19 centuries combined. The days of suffering for your faith, the the days where, where you might be put to death because you believe in Jesus Christ, times that we so easily associate with the barbaric times in, in the Roman Empire under Nero and Caligula and, and people like that, those times are not behind us. Historically, the United States has seemed like a safe place, a, a refuge from such antagonism, but as we look around, it appears that that reality is changing faster than we could have ever imagined possible. It seems almost daily headlines ring with news that anyone who holds to traditional morality, historic faith, or the idea that that there is one true God, such people are being accused of all sorts of evil in a society that claims not to believe in any true sense of good and evil. They are not be, we are not being tolerated by those 
who are self-proclaimed guardians of tolerance. And one by one, we see our beliefs being outlawed by those who just a few years ago said you can't legislate morality. Not to sound alarmist, but we are not safe. We are not immune to the dangers of persecution that we pray for every week throughout the rest of the world. They seem to be growing all around us. The Beatles famously saying, you've got to admit it's getting better, it's getting better all the time, but, but do we? Is that really the case? And it's not just persecution that, that seems to be getting worse. Life is filled with all sorts of pain and heartache. As soon as we conquer one illness, it seems like another more deadly illness crops up and starts taking lives at a faster pace. We pour our lives into relationships only to be hurt and betrayed. We look around and we see all sorts of pain and it's simply overwhelming. And the question is, how do we respond? How are we to understand the fact that our God allows so many evils and injustices to continue seemingly unchecked in our world? And how does our God want us to react? That's what we want to look at today as we spend time in Ecclesiastes 8 because there are two tempting extremes that we need to avoid. There is the temptation to think that it is your job to rescue the world and fix everything. And then there's the opposite extreme, the temptation to think that things will always be as they are today, that there's no judgment coming for wickedness, And you should just do whatever feels good and serves you. And our passage strikes a a blow at both of these errors. And what we're going to see, I pray, as we look at this passage in, in Ecclesiastes 8 is this. Knowing that God will address all evils in time allows us, allows you to rest in him and even to enjoy what is good. Knowing that he will take care of things in his time allows you to rest in him and to enjoy what is good. In Greek mythology, Atlas was a titan tasked with carrying the heavens on his shoulders for all eternity. And his name has become synonymous with the temptation to think that the whole world is depending upon you, carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I think we all know people who who try to be everywhere, know everything, and fix everything. Why are you all looking at me? We all know the temptation to feel like everyone's depending upon us. That one wrong move One lazy moment, and everything will come crashing down. Whenever something goes wrong, to take it personally, to feel like they've let everyone down, carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. 
It's easy to identify it in others, but every one of us is susceptible to this temptation. It doesn't matter whether you are the president or a pastor, a parent, an employee, an employer, or if you're retired, spending your time watching the evening news, hearing each evening just how bad the world is getting. We can all fall into this trap. So what does it look like? Well, it differs from person to person, doesn't it? For some, it's the temptation to correct every error. You just can't let anything go. Every time you hear bad theology or just something silly or foolish or something in poor taste, you have to address it. Correct it. Make sure it doesn't go unaddressed. For others, it's the need to to deal with and address every injustice, everything that smacks of of racism, sexism, class warfare, oppression, everything that doesn't fit your social agenda, whether that be to the right or to the left. Everything that rubs you wrong needs to be exposed, rooted out, and addressed. Or maybe it's simple, you don't like how other people do things. You don't like rules. You don't like standards. You either have a better way or you simply don't like being told what to do and how to do it. And so you silently protest by doing everything a little bit different, leaving your mark on everything you touch. I could go on and list way after way we do this but you know what I'm talking about. It's that temptation to swing at every pitch. You don't let anything go by without your commentary, and it's exhausting. Because wrongs in this world are like that old arcade game whack-a-mole. You hit one down and two pop up. And as soon as, as you hit one more, another two pop up. And you keep whacking and whacking and whacking, thinking, if I just do this long enough, I'll be done. But you never are, because the odds are rigged. There are always more moles. But the problem isn't just the wrongs of the world. It's, it's your belief that God expects you to fix everything and that the world hangs in the balance and is depending upon you. It's thinking that if you just miss one problem, you personally will set the world on a crash course with annihilation. Without realizing it, you think you are the world's only hope. You are the savior of the world that God himself is depending upon you. Maybe you're thinking, I don't try to save the world. I'm having a hard time saving my family, and that's it. Maybe it's not the world, maybe it's your world, you think, lies in the balance. Your children, your parents, your siblings, your employer, your legislatures. But the reality is, there are things that are just outside your control. So using the image of standing in a king's presence, uh, this is the point that Solomon tries to illustrate in the first seven verses. 
It was written in a day where everyone understood what it meant to stand before a king. And it was very different than it is today. It wasn't a time when you would go in, make a jab, and try to get a soundbite that would get replayed on the news or Twitter or something like that. You didn't go in and try to prove how smart you were because the king's word was law. And a lack of respect, a lack of decorum could change your life for the worse forever. You couldn't fight it. You couldn't change it. It was just reality. So what do you do when you go into the king's presence? You go in, you listen, and you leave as soon as possible. You don't debate. You obey as best as you can so far as your conscience will allow. You accept that reality. And you see this is not a fight you need to take on. It's outside your control, and God doesn't expect you to change it. Attempting to change things that you can't will only lead to madness or an early grave. But I know you. You're you're a lot like me. It's not enough to tell you to stop trying to change things that you can't change. You need a reason. You need something that helps you understand why God does not expect you to fix everything that is wrong. And that's what verse 6 is about. He says, there is a time for everything, even though this is a burden to man. God has ordered things so that he allows certain troubles to come for a time. And he has reasons why, and they vary sometimes. It's to humble us and to teach us our need for mercy and grace. Sometimes it's to teach us our need for a better world so that we don't get too comfortable here. Sometimes it's just because he's allowing his judgment to come down on disobedience. And when we fight that judgment, we are fighting him. God has ordained to leave the world imperfect for a time to allow injustices to continue, and for us to suffer the consequences of our foolishness. The greatest reason why we have not been able to fix everything is because God doesn't want us to. If he did, we would have already. Now there's a danger here. Verse 11 says it this way, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The temptation is to think that that because God has not remedied everything already and fixed everything and judged every evil, that he's indifferent to justice and injustice that he doesn't care about pain and suffering and rebellion. The temptation is to think that because God hasn't corrected everything yet, he never will. And he doesn't care how you live or what you do. You see, that's the opposite extreme. Peter addressed that very issue in his second letter. 
He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient. God's delay in addressing all the problems of this world isn't indifference, it's patience. And the two are radically different. Indifference doesn't care. It doesn't matter what you do because there are no consequences. Indifference is devoid of meaning and purpose. Patience is the opposite. It's driven by purpose. It oozes with meaning. Patience deals with unpleasantness because something greater is coming. It gives time for something else to happen. It provides an opportunity during that time. But if you don't understand the difference, you could easily mistake God's patience for indifference. There are many people in this world who get ahead through immorality and then nothing happens. They cheat and they only get richer and more powerful. And the more corrupt they become, the safer they are from the consequences. Because they bribe the police, they bribe politicians, they hobnob with the very ones who are supposed to be prosecuting them. And with a laugh, they sing with Billy Joel, only the good die young. And they keep going, and they keep going. And rather than seeing their stay of execution as an opportunity to change course, they see it as proof that there is no God. And if no God, there is no right and wrong. And they rush headlong into the future, thinking that there's no day of reckoning coming. That there are no consequences for the decisions they make. And that is what Ecclesiastes turns and addresses in verses 8 through 13. Let's read those. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set fully to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. You see, the thing about patience is it's temporary. It's not eternal. It puts up with something for a time because something better awaits on the other side. The wicked cannot beat the grave. It comes for all, regardless of the size of your bank account. No one does evil forever. No man has power over the day of death, verse 8. The city they once ruled over becomes the very city they are buried under, verse 10. This is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. That life is short. It doesn't go on forever. 
No matter what you do, you can't extend it forever. And initially, that was a a cause for frustration for Solomon. He couldn't beat death. That word translated vanity really means breath. Life is a mere breath, then it's gone. Whether you're a king or a pauper. And what that also means is that the life of the wicked is also a breath. Their rule disappears as quickly as it appeared. And so even if the wicked are able to live a hundred years through their wickedness, it's only a hundred years. They can't avoid death forever. And when death comes, when they stand before their creator, who do you want to be? The one who took God's patience as indifference, who built your fortune on the backs of others, who had no fear of God in your eyes, or the one who feared God, regardless of how wealthy you were, how powerful you were, how healthy you were. It is those who fear God who will be okay in death, not the wicked. That is what matters more than all the riches the world has to offer. And this is what we are meant to learn before we die. This is why God has patience. It's what Peter says in that passage I read in in 2 Peter. It goes on and says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And then He gives His reason, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's patience is an act of mercy. It's there for your benefit. It's there to give you time to repent for your sin and turn to Him for mercy. See, here's our problem. None of us want God to deal with all wickedness before we're saved. But once we are, it's kind of like, would you take care of this place? But God wants others to come to faith. The fact that all sin is not judged immediately does not mean it won't be. It's precisely because all sin will be judged that God is being patient. Because that judgment is ultimate, final, and eternal. And what that means is that there is only one who can right all wrongs. Beloved, You are not God, and you would be terrible at his job. Since the beginning, God has shown us that he works for a while, and then he rests when he's done. In six days, he created, and when he was done, came the rest. That first week was a a picture of the entirety of history of the world. Rest comes at the end. Until then, there's much work to do, much that will be repeated over and over until the end. And no matter how hard you work, you cannot bring about that final rest. If you try, the only thing you will accomplish is robbing yourself of a good night's sleep. And you might suffer as if you had done the exact opposite, as if you were seeking only after wickedness. 
The reason you can't save the world, you can't right all wrongs, you can't even fix your world is because you're part of the problem and therefore you can't be the solution. You can't take care of your own sin. You're not the Savior. You're the one who needs saving. This is why Jesus had to come into the world. Because he is the only one who can set all things right. And he does everything at just the right time. At just the right time, he came into the world. At just the right time, he he died on the cross in our place. And at just the right time, he rose again from the dead. And at just the right time, he ascended into heaven. And at just the right time, he will come back in final judgment. And that day will be a great comfort to those who fear God. But for those who set their hearts on evil, it will not be a comfort because he will bring judgment. Patience is not indifference. Not yet is not never. Jesus is coming and he will set all things right. So how are you to respond? Let's read verses 14 through 17. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For a man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. That a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot Find it out. God doesn't expect you to know how and when He will set all things right. He does not expect you to fix everything. And He doesn't call you to turn your hands to wickedness as if this life was all there is. Clearly, you are called to fear God and to pursue Him. I know there's a temptation. We are people of extremes. We either want to be the saviors of the world or do no good. And God says, no. Pursue me. Obey me. But there are going to be things you can't fix. You can't change. We're called to fear God and pursue him. That message shows up not only in our passage, but throughout this book. You should care about truth and justice. And in right proportion, address those, speak those. You need to obey God. You need to love and serve others. But you also need to accept that there are things that God does not expect you to change. And you cannot change. 
We might be entering into dark times in our nation. We might not. But no amount of letter writing is going to change God's providence. You can't rescue everyone from pain and heartache, and God doesn't expect you to. You don't need to fix every evil. You don't have to swing at every pitch. Your life is more, so much more, than a grand game of whack-a-mole. And so you need to learn that sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, it's okay to keep your mouth shut. Sometimes it's okay to just accept that you can't change everything and that you'll go mad if you try. That God knows He's not indifferent, He's just patient. Beloved, it's okay to surrender into the arms of your Savior. It's okay to admit that that you are not the hope of the world. You're not even the hope of your world. It's okay to trust His timing. Sometimes that's what true faith looks like. Something else God taught us when He created the world is that One of the ways we prepare for the final rest is by stopping and enjoying it along the way, even before the work is done. By instituting the Sabbath, by saying every seven days you stop and you rest, we acknowledge that though the work is not yet done, it will be one day. We proclaim by our rest that we are made for a better world, one free from all pain and suffering. And so sometimes the best thing you can do to fight the injustices of this world is to simply refuse to be defined by them, to stop fighting and simply eat and drink and be joyful. That's what verse 15 says. I commend joy. Thank you, Solomon. The best a man can do is eat and drink and find joy. Sometimes that's how you fight injustice. You say, it doesn't define me. I'm a citizen of heaven. And in so doing, you are showing that you're not defined by the toils of this life, that you are surrendering to God. You are confident that He will, in His perfect time, set all things right. I know you love application. So what can you do this morning to make the world a better place? You can surrender to Jesus. You can rest a little. And you can eat and drink and be joyful. What better place could we conclude than at the Lord's table where we do all of these things? So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward this morning that we might receive the Lord's Supper. Please join me in prayer. Our loving Savior, you know us. You know how we ping-pong between trying to save the world and total indifference. We either want to be in charge or we want to give up. 
Forgive us our foolish pride. And teach us to honor you because it is right, not because it brings about our desired ends. Teach us to recognize that we can't fix everything and that you don't expect us to. Without retreating into indifference, help us to accept that we don't need to swing at every pitch, correct every error, challenge every injustice. Help us to learn what it means to rest in you and even to pause and enjoy the good things that you have given. Trusting that there is a day coming when you will right all wrongs, address all errors, and judge all sin. Until then, we rest. We rest and we pray. Come quickly. Lord Jesus, amen.